Welcome to the Five Good Ideas podcast, where we rebroadcast some of the best sessions of Maytree's popular Lunch and Learn program. I'm your host, Gayatri Kumar, and I'm a communication specialist at Maytree. We're a Toronto-based organization committed to exploring solutions to poverty in Canada using a human rights approach. For each session of Five Good Ideas, we invite an expert from the nonprofit or corporate sector to share five practical ideas on a key management issue facing nonprofit organizations today. In the session you're about to hear, originally recorded on September 18, 2018, we look at the power of local solutions for stronger communities. Our speaker for this session is Karen Petrie. The most successful solutions for building stronger communities have local support and are driven by local champions. Nonprofits, school boards, libraries, municipalities, community health centers, and many others understand that. They see the value in the local, and they're not afraid of the challenges in developing local solutions with multiple partners. In her presentation, Karen Petrie offers five good ideas on how we can support local champions and break down the silos that get in the way of local initiatives. Karen is the president of the Lonsdale Group, a strategic planning and project management firm that focuses on community infrastructure projects. Karen was a special advisor to the Premier on Community Hubs from 2015 to 2018. She has extensive experience in stakeholder consultation, strategic planning, and project management. Karen has also worked with all three levels of government, including as part of her work with the Toronto Olympic bid in 2008 and with Waterfront Toronto. Here is Karen Petrie with her five good ideas about the power of local solutions for stronger communities. Good afternoon, everybody, um, and thank you, Liz, and to Maitri for the opportunity today. And I'm going to start... Um, and I apologize to those of you who've heard this before, to give you a little bit of background about the journey that I've been on for the past three years, because I think it helps provide the context for the five good ideas and also leads into the conversation about where do we go from here. So as we mentioned, I was appointed in March of 2015, and uh, it was perfect. It was the Friday of March break, and I thought they'd quietly let out a little press release that said Karen would be the special advisor to the Premier, and I thought it's perfect. Since we didn't actually know what a community hub was or what we were planning, I thought we could get ourselves some time to get organized. And over the course of that weekend, I heard from everybody from everywhere. Um, it was actually remarkable the number of people that found me when I didn't even know sort of how they did that. Um, and so when went into work on Monday and realized that we had actually a much more daunting challenge than we thought because there was so many people that actually knew what a community hub was when we were still trying to find out what that looked like. And the Premier's instructions were very very clear when we started this. Um, she said, we've been talking about community hubs for decades, so how do we move this forward? How do we help the people that are working on the ground? And by this, in sort of the loose definition that we were talking about was really community hubs are an integrated service delivery model um, with multiple partners to meet local needs. So as you can appreciate, that's a fairly wide-ranging conversation. The other thing that was very clear was don't tell us um, what doesn't work, because actually that's really easy, especially if you're in government. You can find everything that doesn't work. But what we wanted to find out was, what are your options for actually fixing this? So what do we do to actually change the channel and make this uh, easier? And you need to help us develop an action plan. 
So I had the help of an advisory group, which was also a little bit contentious because uh, there were a number of people that were stakeholders that were not on the advisory group that could not imagine for the life of them how we could actually have an advisory group that didn't include them. And I said, if we had an advisory group that included all the stakeholders, that we would have to have a regular meeting like this, and it would include too many people. So we put together a number of people that had experience in government and actually were strategic thinkers. And uh, it took a while for uh, some sectors to realize that actually not being at the table didn't mean they weren't part of the conversation. So we over 90 days, and actually the Premier originally said, could you give us an action plan in 30 days? Um, we begged for 90 because we said we've never heard from so many people. We had 350 organizations and held 70 stakeholder meetings in 90 days. And we didn't go out and actually have what you would call a typical consultation period because, quite frankly, we couldn't handle the people that were coming to us. So where there were gaps, where we felt that there were sectors that we weren't hearing from, we did go and, and seek that out. But the diversity of the organizations was really remarkable. It came from schools, libraries, health centers. Anybody who comes from a health center, I heard from every single one of you. Um, police, municipalities, and there was also a really strong um, number of organizations from the legal uh, side of things, from both courts and social justice tribunals. So it was a really broad-ranging uh, group of people. We also heard from uh, the friendship centers and the United Way was a big part of this, and I would say the friendship centers were really interesting and said, we've been the community hub forever. You just need to come and talk to us, and we'll tell you how it's done. And to be fair, they were absolutely right, and we took a lot of their advice. We said, please tell us how to fix some of the things that are not working in the system. And there was the feedback that we got and the submissions that we got were really remarkable. People spent a lot of time uh, and a lot of thought in terms of how they could make changes, how the government could actually make changes. And uh, we had two summer students working full-time trying to summarize the briefs that we received, and we ended up with a, a document about two inches thick, which was just the two-paragraph summary of all the good advice that we got. Um, so we managed to pull that together, um, as we mentioned in a report, with 27 recommendations, and it was released in August of 2015. The other really interesting conversation we had was there was a desire by some people to do pilot projects. And uh, there was a really strong push to say there's a lot of really interesting projects underway. Why don't we pick three or five and really, you know, turn our minds to them? And the very opinionated advisory group that I have said, not a chance. They said, you can do a pilot project and you can make it successful, but you don't actually drive any systemic changes. So great, you made five communities better, but you're not changing the system. So instead of having pilot projects, we put together an issues tracking list, and we said to any community, if you're running into a problem, whatever it might be, that uh, we need to hear about in terms of what the challenges are at a local level, let us know and we'll put this together. So I sort of chuckled and we put together an issues tracker list, and instead of having three to five pilot projects, we had about 200. Um, but it was really interesting because we, will, we were able to lump them into specific issues. People were having problems with planning or their, or their funding didn't align properly. So it was very helpful for us to actually see what the actual problems were that were people that were experiencing on the ground. And we had a huge section, not a huge section, it was actually quite short, and I recommend that you read it. It's not a long document because I don't really believe that anyone reads, so it's quite short. Um, but what we did here was that the concept of community hubs is not new. 
And uh, many of you will say, and the Friendship Center made it very clear, we know that's, that's the truth. And there's amazing examples of community hubs from all across the province. But it's not because of any coordinated public policy, it's actually in spite of it. Um, so it's incredibly challenging work, and there's a wide range and diversity of models. And we don't want to change that because we know that actually doing things at a local level means it's going to be very different even in different neighborhoods. The other challenge is that there's many people and groups that can be involved in community hubs, and all of them have, in many cases, a different mandate and a different interest, and it's hard to answer to a different master with a different mandate when you're operating in a, in a shared space. And the other thing we found, which was actually kind of depressing, was the different geographical boundaries. And we actually layered on school board boundaries, municipal boundaries, forget about what's happening here, municipal boundaries, um, how, uh, health boundaries, none of them align, and yet they're all planning for their geographical boundary. And we said, okay, we are not going to try and change the boundaries because we'll spend 20 years fighting over the boundaries. Let's figure out how we can require integrated planning across boundaries. Not easy, but it was one of the things that many jurisdictions said, how do we actually do this when we have completely different areas that we're planning for? Um, we also heard that much of the work was done uh, and, and the result of local heroes. And how do we support those um, people that are doing this incredible heavy lifting along the ground? So the last piece of sort of what we heard was that the province should look at the services that they provide, for example, community health centers, social justice tribunals, courts, as an anchor in a community hub so that there's actually something that gives it sort of that sustainable uh, model. And we know, again, that it's really unique depending on the community that it serves. And therefore, we had a really fun time because we didn't define a community hub. And when you work in government, that drives them crazy. They want to actually define it, put it in a box, and say, this is a community hub or this isn't. And we said, you know what, it really doesn't matter. We don't have a program and we're not funding it directly. So if somebody thinks this is a community hub, whether it's a recreation center, a YMCA, community health center, it doesn't really matter if that's where the community goes and sees it as a community hub. But I have to tell you, that was just very funny conversations in government because they want to define it. And... Maybe we need to define it a little bit better, but we said it's more of an integrated service delivery model, and uh, that makes it challenging. So I want to sort of, that's sort of, sort of the work that we did, and I want to focus on the five good ideas because it was an interesting conversation as we were working with sort of figuring out what, what were the big ideas out of this one, and I think one of the first one on your list is bigger is not always better. And I would say that community understands this, even if government doesn't. And I think it's really interesting is that I met with uh, officials, and I had the great luxury of working across multiple ministries with great people. And I said, community hubs is actually running counter to most provincial policies. So we've got bigger schools. We're consolidating them. We're consolidating hospitals. We're consolidating courthouses. And communities no longer have control over their local destiny. So it's a really interesting juxtaposition as we talk about what the future looks like is this is a huge problem for communities who do not see the solution the way that governments are actually presenting it. Um, and I'll give you one example. I was um, supposed to be speaking in Temiskaming Shores, 
and there may be somebody on the phone from Temiskaming Shores, and it was in a January, and the weather was turning, and I was supposed to be in Kingston the following day, and I said, you know, I really don't think I can make this. And they had a slight panic, and they sort of said, you have to. So I talked to them, and I said, can you just tell me who's coming and what the what what's happening there? And they said, we have 150 organizations from across Temiskaming coming to talk about community hubs, January, the north, Temiskaming. And I said, wow, is that something that happens on a regular basis? And, you know, that's, I wouldn't have thought there were 150 organizations. She said, no, actually, it's never happened before. It's the first time somebody's actually talking about the fact that we actually get control of our local destiny back because school board decisions are made hundreds of miles away. Nobody's actually talking about how it actually translates into our local community. That was very profound, and I actually felt like a a huge uh, sort of understanding in some ways of why this has touched such a nerve. But I think it's important to remember that that local sort of interest and that local planning really does matter. And it's really was difficult for us, and we were in government, to push against what is the thinking in government that bigger is better. And actually, that's code for bigger is more efficient, and I don't even know that that's true. Um, So the second one is don't give up. Uh, where there is a will, there is a way. And I'm going to give you two examples. Um, I would say the depressing and the exciting part of when I got all these responses with all these people that have been working on these incredibly complicated projects in the community that were stuck. And they were stuck because of government, um, and they were stuck because of the rigidity in the systems that is not set up to deal with community. So I'll give you one example. We had... Um, uh, Shirley Rasheen, our local hero from a small town called Limoges, which is eastern Ontario, just outside of Ottawa. And uh, she had been working for, I think it was eight years, as the local volunteer to bring francophone services to the community of Limoges, which was an aging community outside of Ottawa, so they didn't have to drive two hours or leave, leave Limoges as it was. And she had a development partner that was going to actually build the health services building if we could only align the Ministry of Health spending. And she was just running into brick wall after brick wall, despite the fact that the developer was actually making a major contribution and would have cost the province, would have had to pay the capital if they didn't do it. Um, so we worked, again, with our little hubs team inside government to say, this is ridiculous. You're going to approve it next year, but the developer's going to already build it, and we will miss the opportunity, and you're going to have to go back and build it later. So... We did manage to break that down, and that was one of the things where we found huge problems with alignment. We can't seize the opportunity when we have it. And surely now, uh, we went to the opening. It was unbelievable, because when you work with a developer, they move really fast. And once we got it freed up that they'd get the health money, we actually went to the grand opening, and uh, our local hero was front and center, and it was because of her passion and her drive and and making this happen, and there's now 50 people working in this health center in Limoges delivering Francophone health services for what is now becoming a thriving Francophone community. And I'll give you one other example, which I told you I heard from every community health center in the province, and they were just enormously frustrated. Um, And our friends at the United Way, who were great partners in our journey, um, had been at the Rexdale uh, Community Hub, and they had a space that was empty for a community health center that had been approved. The city was paying rent on, but they hadn't got the capital to build it. For eight years, it sat in this empty spot. And again, it was, I don't know why we were able to sort of poke the bear, I guess. Um, 
our colleagues at the Ministry of Health came a long way with us in terms of trying to align this community uh, Ministry of Health infrastructure. But it was not that there wasn't money. It was that they just couldn't make all of the alignment work in a way that got it delivered. So again, it's now built, it's open, um, and they changed the guidelines around the community health centers as a result of the work that we did. Um, but you shouldn't have to work that hard um, to make these kind of projects successful. The third one is money is not the only answer and little things can make a big difference. And I want to talk a little bit about this because the number of people that said to me, we just need money, and I, I actually fundamentally do not agree with that, and I'll tell you why. Um, it's been really interesting in terms of building a collective responsibility. So as I said, we had 27 recommendations, um, and we had a Mighty Hubs team working out of Cabinet Office, small number of people that were responsible for moving the machinery of government. And basically what we did was we gave each ministry responsibility for the, a recommendation. And it was their job to work across ministries and figure out how to solve it. And we became sort of the coordinator and worked both inside and outside government to drive that change. And I always sort of chuckle, one of the first meetings we had here, we gave the Ministry of Municipal Affairs, two of the hardest ones, we said we didn't know uh, we needed to require integrated local planning, which I mentioned earlier is really problematic, and integrated provincial planning, and they sort of called us and said, okay, so how do we do that? Because we're not set up as a system to do this kind of work. And so what they decided to do was to host five forums across the province, and we went to Thunder Bay, we went to Sudbury, Kingston, London, we held one in this room uh, in Toronto, and the question for people was, how do we actually start breaking down the silos um, to start planning together? And I did that little exercise where we introduced people around the room because what I found in Thunder Bay was probably the most uh, interesting for me because it was the Friday before Christmas and it was snowing and people had driven five hours to be part of this conversation. And when we got everybody to go around the room and introduce themselves, it was like speed dating. They said, ah, oh, you're with the school board or you're with the Lynn. And all of a sudden the coffee break became this amazing networking opportunity for people that actually work in silos, and actually don't actually plan outside their area. So this was the start of that process, to start to break down those barriers and figure out how we can do things differently. The other big difference that didn't require money was the role of the convener. And I have to say that was probably the most interesting um, observation for me was community hubs as the convener we didn't have a vested interest. We didn't have a program. Um, every time someone else said, well, I'll hold a meeting, someone says, well, why are they holding the meeting? What are they trying, you know, whereas we, we could come in as almost the honest broker. And I said, in some ways, um, we became the point of intersection. And really the, my request in many cases was don't give us money because until we figure out um, who's funding what and how it's working, we don't actually know that money is the problem here. And it's interesting when you start talking about all the different, um, in many cases, competing resources that are in uh, in the space, there may be a need for new money. I'm not going to suggest that's not the case. But until we understand who's doing what and if it's working, I'm not sure we can make that, uh, you know, that kind of observation. And I think the challenge we had at the province is that it's nobody's job to be the integrator, other than the Premier or the Secretary of Cabinet, or Karen with their backing. 
Um, and I would say there's a tremendous number of amazing civil servants that once we gave them that permission and the backing to work collaboratively across ministries, they were hugely energized and helpful. And they saw this as a way of actually doing a lot of the things that they wanted to do better. But is the way we structure our governments is we all report through a ministry and we don't have that uh, horizontal alignment. So that in and of itself was huge. And the coordinating that happened across government to move forward on these recommendations wasn't money. It was actually knowing who was doing what and trying to align those. And the last part of it's not money is really capacity building. And uh, the community was really clear, and I heard it many times, don't do it to us, do it and help us do it, our, do it ourselves. So you need to help us build uh, the resources at a local level so that we can actually do what we know is the right thing to do, and if it comes from on high, the chances are it's going to be wrong. So we started to put together the tools to build an online resource network and to connect people in that space. And the other thing we did, which again was again, tapping the nerve was remarkable, was we held a summit. And uh, it was uh, a year ago at, at Burgreen, and we had no heat, and it was really cold. But it was an amazing uh, experience, because what happened was we sent out a survey to people, and we said, we're going to host this summit, and what would you like us you know, to make sure we put on the agenda? And within 24 hours, we had 250 responses of what people thought we should be talking about, which was like, oh my gosh. Um, and then we said, we better hold the date, um, even though we didn't know what the agenda was and who was coming. But we said, we better hold the date, and we have a capacity of 500 people, and it was full within putting that notice out. No agenda, nobody knew what, what was coming, but they all wanted to come and be part of this conversation. At the end of the day, we had 700 people show up. They just decided, I don't care if it's full, I'm coming anyways. The Premier was there with eight cabinet ministers, the deputy minister, and the secretary of cabinet. And the funniest part was, uh, I have this rule, it's called no PowerPoints. And we had people speaking, and they said, uh, well, you know, I, I'll get my presentation ready. I said, no, we don't want you to give a presentation. We want you to talk for about two minutes and tell us what you're doing and listen to how other people, you know, what other people are doing, and then we want to put together an action plan. And it was really interesting because some people were completely comfortable with that, and they said, no problem, I can do that. And other people were like, what do you mean? I, I don't talk without a PowerPoint. I said, but that takes 20 minutes to do a PowerPoint, and we're going to give you two, so speak quickly and no PowerPoints. Um, so it was just a, it made for a much more energized conversation. We had multiple people explaining what they were doing, and then we had discussions around how does that help move this forward. And I think the most impactful sort of part of that conversation was we had uh, Mary Weens from CBC Radio, you probably know, who was uh, interviewing Sheldon Kennedy and Steve Orsini. And so for those of you who don't know, Sheldon Kennedy is a hockey player, played in the NHL, but was sexually abused as a young hockey player. Um, and then has actually done incredible work, which I'll explain. And Steve Orsini, who is the head of the public service in Ontario. And poor Mary Ween said, I'm happy to interview them, but I have no idea how I connect these conversations. And I said, so let's talk to them. So we went and interviewed both of them. And Sheldon Kennedy is, is uh, incredible. And if you haven't seen it, there is a video that actually of this interview. And Sheldon... Um, is the poster child of what happens if you don't connect the dots. So he was sexually abused as a hockey player. He's dropped out of school. He ran into trouble with the law. He started drinking, and he ended up basically destroying his career. And his point was, 
At no point did anybody ask why. Why is this happening to this kid? What's going on here? So nobody connected the dots. There was no integration of this kid's running into problems. How do we solve this? And Steve Orsini, as the person who's responsible for delivering of provincial services, really delivers in silos. So how do we connect those dots, which might be in corrections or might be in community safety or might be talking to the teacher? And Sheldon has gone on to do amazing work in Alberta. He has a children's treatment center in um, Calgary where they basically have one-stop shopping. Child comes in, tells their story. Um, they have all the supports there. They've increased the guilty plea so the child doesn't have to go to court. Court costs are going down. He has actually uh, delivered in terms of showing why this is not only important for the child, but more importantly, how the system actually is way more efficient and is actually saving money. And it was funny, and until we sort of have those what I call top-down and bottom-up conversations, the people working from the top down don't understand that if they don't do it right, this is what happens when we're talking about someone like this. So it's just a re it was really an interesting sort of exercise. And the last piece of sort of the capacity building was we have a reason. We had a resource group which was 40 plus organizations of people that um, were involved in community hubs that said they would be prepared to help. And this include the school boards, municipalities, um, not for profits. And we said, can we pool resources? So Wood Green and the United Way and um, ONN, the not-for-profit network, built tools from their members that have actually done this before. And we put them into a network so that if you're starting from scratch, you can actually go and find a partnership agreement or a legal agreement that somebody's used before. Because what we were finding was people feel very isolated and alone, and they're trying to do it all from scratch when there's all kinds of people that have done this before and gone through torturous processes to learn from it, so why do we not connect those? So we, we built that uh, tool, and again, these are not money in the system, these are capacity building tools that we developed. So last ones before we turn this over to you guys is, I'm going to put the two together. You may have to give something up to make it work, and it's important to listen, but it's also important to hear. And I want to use an example because I think, for me, it was really the most interesting, insightful one. And as I mentioned, we had a section in the report called What We Heard. And what we heard was that we should look at community courts. And then when we circulated the document inside government, just to make sure we hadn't set off any storms or said something wrong, the Minister of the Attorney General said, you have to take that out of your report. And I said, what are you talking about? It's what we heard. Well, we're not doing it. I said, but you didn't read it. It says what we heard, not what we're doing. So we kept it in, much to their horror, because they were in the process of consolidating courts. So for us to say what we heard was we think we should be doing community courts or that we should be looking at this, this was totally not what they were interested in hearing. Um, but we continued to hear from people in the legal and the correctional service, the Advocates Society, we had the John Howard Society, social justice tribunals, we had community safety and situation tables, all who have said the system is not working. Um, so there was a lot of interest in trying to figure out how to do something differently, but at the same time, and this is where I say, the ministry did listen. They just didn't tell us that. But, and more importantly, they heard, because they started to look at different models and for a year, they did due diligence on different models from around the world as to how they might uh, deliver on, on a different system. And they came back um, and said, we've been persuaded that we need to look at something different. And they brought forward a recommendation to do a community needs assessment in three communities, Kenora, London, and Moss Park in Toronto. 
Um, so we worked with them, and this was totally different for them. Usually the Ministry of the Attorney General doesn't really go outside of the box. And it took a lot of courage, and we worked with them to bring housing, mental health, social service, and corrections together to say, you can't solve this by yourself, so we are here to actually figure out that piece. Um, so it's really the concept of bringing things under one roof. And the reason I, I use it in a broader context is that anything is possible. Because if you'd told me a year ago when we put this forward that the Ministry of the Attorney General would have been looking at this, I would have said there's not a chance. They were so resistant to it. Um, and they're not your typical partner. So I sort of feel like you can move mountains with the right sort of compelling argument. And we also found when we did these community needs assessment in these communities, it also bore out that each community justice center in these three communities was also unique. And if you think about government, they like to have a made uh, policy and say this is how you should do it. And when you start saying there's a different one in each community, it becomes even more complicated. So I think it it's going to be a difficult journey. I'm, I'm hoping that they actually continue with that work. It won't be easy. And these are complex multi-stakeholder projects, but there was enough initiative inertia behind that that I think it may continue in some form. And I really do give a lot of credit to the ministry folks who actually had the courage to step up. And the one funny thing, when we were going through an approval process and someone said, can you guarantee that this is what it's looked like when we're finished? And I said, I can guarantee you that it won't. If you do this right, it will completely change as you go down the road because you'll find that it's not exactly what you thought when you started. And again, that kind of thinking is, is hard for people to sort of sign up and agree to something when they don't know what it's going to look like. And I think the other thing that we found is that for many of the organizations working in this space is often the status quo is not working, but people are very uh, intense to hang on to what they've got. And they don't want to give up, and they don't really want to do things differently because they might lose funding here or they might, you know, something might happen. And I think it's really important for people to understand you may have to do things differently, you may have to work with different partners to get something to work properly. And that that's a difficult conversation in communities that feel like they're always starving for that next grant application or that funding opportunity. But that is the challenge in the system. And government has a challenge of working in silos and being very turf protected, but so do the sector that is actually uh, trying to deliver on the ground. So I think those are sort of the the things that I think we want to think about. And I'm looking forward to the discussion today. And we've really put on um, a few questions for people to think about is sort of how do we continue the momentum. And it's really been uh, a big thank you to all the people that have been part of this journey. But I think the community uh, knows that this should be the start of something that we can continue. And the question really to the group here and on uh, online is to how do we do that? How do we keep this momentum going? How do we continue the conversation in a way that uh, really brings people together and solves those local community problems? Thank you for listening to Five Good Ideas with Karen Petrie. We link to Karen's Five Good Ideas, her resources, and a full transcript of today's session in our show notes. You can find all of her Five Good Ideas sessions from past seasons on the Maytree website, maytree.com forward slash five dash good dash ideas. And of course, you can subscribe to our podcast to continue to listen to our best sessions. See you next time. <laughs>